0: But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted September 16, 2022, titled, Christian Philosopher Fails to Fix the Internet He Broke. William Lane Craig response. Well, congratulations, Bill. You've blown up the internet. William Lane Craig admitted something that I didn't think that any Christian would ever actually openly admit. If there is
1: just one chance in a million that this is true, it's worth believing.
2: This is Ray Comfort-level nonsense, coming from the mouth of perhaps the most revered and respected theist of our time.
1: Far from raising the bar, or the epistemic standard that Christianity must meet to be believed, I, I lower it. Oops, I said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet, <laughs>
3: Wow.
0: I'm just saying wow a lot because I couldn't even believe this happened.
3: Well, has Dr. Craig committed intellectual suicide?
0: I found the single greatest clip of William Lane Craig ever, and the Christian apologetics world is in damage control. How did we get here? What are the responses? And are they any good? Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians just a little over a month ago on my Pology Alive channel. And by the way, if you don't already know about the Pology Alive channel, it's where I have live conversations with Christians and non-Christians alike and speak off the cuff about whatever Christian claim topics catch my fancy on the day. If you enjoy the scripted content I make here, you might enjoy what I do over there. Maybe check it out once this video's done. Anyhow, a month that should go on my Pology Alive channel, I did what I normally do and talk about whichever Christian podcast made me angry that day while I'm walking my dog. Yesterday, I was out walking my pup and I heard the new episode, I guess we would call it, of the Reasonable Faith Podcast with William Lane Craig. I got to give credit to like Paul Gia
4: here because it was his video. I didn't know about this. He was like on the walk or whatever. And he's like, I listened to Craig's like, I'm like... Paul's a strange guy. Like, he listens to William Lane Craig all the time, you know? But anyway,
0: it's Paul. I'm the only atheist who listens to William Lane Craig podcast. I think. And one of those unscripted rants created a spark that set off some fireworks across the internet that have kind of rocked the apologetic house built by one William Lane Craig.
3: And I've got... Dr. Craig with me. We're looking at a very controversial statement he made and has sort of been making the rounds on Atheist YouTube.
0: We have the original podcast. Next question. Hello, Dr. Craig. Then we have my response. So I mainly want to share with you something that I think is amazing, which inspired other responses. And my dude, Paul Ligia, has covered this from an ex-Christian perspective.
4: And all thanks to Paul on his new channel, Paul Gia Live. That is a clip from Paul the apologetic equivalent of trust me, bro.
5: He seems to be suggesting to others that they ought to lower their epistemic standards as
6: well. Hey, there's your new nickname, Low Bar Bill.
0: And then we had a wave of responses to the responses. His response to it has
6: gotten a lot of attention from atheists, specifically from Paulogia. I have responded to the Paulogia video in a
1: podcast that Kevin Harris and I recorded. Uh, last week. I may not be the best
3: Christian apologist in the world, (laughs) but I can pronounce apologia.
0: And now we've arrived into a family of responses to the responses to the responses to the original podcast. And my ambitious goal today is to completely respond to all of it from William Lane Craig.
1: And so it has been quite a surprise to me to see the vitriol with which Certain people have reacted to my statements.
0: And the other Christian YouTubers... We'll see if Paul a response. I... ...in what will hopefully be a final nail in this coffin. But that necessarily means that there are a lot of threads to follow, a lot of layers to negotiate...
2: You get it! We both have layers!
0: <sighs> ...and some judicious editing to be economical with your time. I'll do my best to give some visual indicators to clarify some of the chaos, check the description for the relevant links and to check the original context of everything said. You'll be hearing the full Q&A that sparked it all, but in pieces as we'll be pausing frequently to follow each rabbit trail. So to big picture recap for those just joining the conversation now. If you're just coming to this and you're like, what are you guys even talking about? Well, I'm sure you all know Winland Craig is seen as the
6: most um, popular apologist today. I emailed him a question. We've all made
4: recent videos talking about a question
7: from a Christian named Kyle. Who was having doubts about his faith as a Christian. He said, in essence, that the commitment to Christianity was so all-encompassing that he should perhaps demand a visit from an angel or Mary or Jesus himself in order to make such a commitment. And your response to him has produced multiple response videos, uh, especially from atheists. And it's basically gone viral um, among the atheist community. And you've gotten everyone stirred up. With the table set,
1: let's dive in. It seems to me that there are two broad issues here that need to be discussed. One is the relationship between pragmatic justification and epistemic justification. And I think it's very clear from the comments of these non-theist interlocutors that they don't have any understanding whatsoever of that relationship.
0: My lack of understanding is going to be a common theme.
1: And I think that it was clear that he no more understood this distinction between pragmatic justification and epistemic justification, then does Stephen Woodford, and so they are offended at the idea that the pragmatic might encroach upon the epistemic. The other issue, then, is the proper basicality of Christian belief grounded in the witness of the Holy Spirit, and that that is not inconsistent with also being able to provide good arguments and evidence uh, to epistemically justify
7: Christianity. Let's go to this first clip from Paul He claims to be an ex-Christian. He's now an atheist. We've interacted with some of the material that he's presented before. Quite popular. Here's that first clip. His response to your answer to Kyle. In yesterday's podcast,
0: William Lane Craig admitted something that I didn't think that any Christian would ever actually openly admit. So I mainly want to share with you something that I think is amazing. Next question.
7: Hello, Dr. Craig. I've enjoyed your ministry. And it's I love little bit of It's bouncing and making me want to
0: bounce. Yeah, on the day I did that live stream, only the audio of the podcast was available, so I like to use the bouncy figures to lend some visual interest here on YouTube. But Reasonable Faith has since posted the video version, so we can use that. Unfortunately, we're stuck with bouncing on the newest response.
7: Dream has helped strengthen my faith over the years.
0: You know what? Kyle, the question asker, who runs a channel called Christian Idealism, hosted his own live stream.
6: I emailed him a question and... It took, it took about a month and a half for him to get back to
0: me. Where he read the question himself. You know what? Let's use that instead of Craig's podcast sidekick.
6: Hello, Dr. Craig. I enjoyed your ministry. It has helped to shake my faith over the years. But I've recently been having trouble, troubling thoughts in my mind. My trouble is that one of the things about Christianity is that it requires a lot of work to follow. In order to follow Christ, you have to orient your entire life around him. And Christianity, of course, is not just a set of propositions
0: that one holds, but it is a faith practice, a way of life. To recap there, the person who has sent in a question to Dr. Craig's podcast is currently a Christian, but is saying, hey, Christianity is a very costly endeavor. And he listed off some things you have to do. I would add in there, as someone who has now a former Christian, that Christianity demands the focus of your entire life. And given that we know we have one life, we are not guaranteed any more life than that. So to spend the one life you have in full devotion to that set of propositions of truth claims, that is a huge gamble because we will not get a do
1: Yeah, this is a description of the negative costs of Christian belief. And again, I so disagree with Pologia about the character of the Christian life. Um, that isn't descriptive of my Christian life, Kevin, and I, I don't think yours either. The Christian life is a life of abundant
0: uh, joy and meaning and purpose. Well, that's just it, Dr. Craig. You personally find great fulfillment and enjoyment from Christianity as a lifestyle choice, independent of its truth value. While I was a Christian, I might have said the same. I was content. For me, it was only after leaving that I came to realize how many of my life choices were unduly influenced by my adherence to Christian doctrine, and how much of my one and only life was sacrificed and squandered. I'm not sure this is something that a Christian believer can fully evaluate. As a way of life, Christianity works for Bill Craig. So, is he actually critically examining the Christian claims? With the same rigorous skepticism he might give claims that don't personally work for him? To find Christianity false would mean that Craig would need to give up the lifestyle he prefers. This is undoubtedly a potential source of confirmation bias in Craig's work. Yes, it demands total
1: commitment, but
0: then you are, you are given the
1: peace and love and uh, purpose uh, of God that fills your life during this life, so that even if it ended at the grave, you will have had a wonderful life uh, in this world.
0: That is far from everyone's experience. Dr. Craig is speaking from incredible privilege here. Many Christians live in oppression, live in fear, live untrue to themselves, and fail to meet and explore their full potential. But they endure these burdens solely because they are led to believe that their suffering is what God wants of them. There are so many passages of the Bible attempting to console suffering Christians. Romans 5 springs to mind. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Or 1 Peter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. In John 16, Jesus promises his followers, In this world you will have trouble. These passages wouldn't need to be in there, if Dr. Craig's life was the typical Christian experience.
1: I think this topic is so important. I I think that the misunderstandings evident in these response videos are so serious, and particularly these non-Christians' understanding of what the Christian life is like. A lot of us were Christians. We know what it's like to live a Christian life. And it
4: almost sounded like he doesn't think we get it. And I'm like, no, we get it.
1: I don't think you get it. A life that is a performance-oriented, work-oriented, task-driven sort of thing is just so wrong that it needs to be uh, corrected.
0: It's not just the tasks, Dr. Craig, although it can be that. It's making life decisions based on potentially incorrect facts, potentially credulous reasoning, and sacrificing this life for the mere promise of the next
1: i want people to understand that it's it's a joy and a thrill to live the
0: christian life
1: and that, that 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 there's great reward in
0: doing so dr craig can afford a very low epistemic standard for christianity not only because of the infinite rewards of heaven but also because it works for him here and now
5: so i've seen atheists do this but in opposite where they think they got to raise it to a high standard because it would affect their life in many ways so They got to judge it by such a, it seems like a much higher standard. So they're going in the opposite direction of Craig. And not a lot of like videos about that. So I, I just, I don't, I never really thought this was a big deal because I've seen Christians do this and I've seen atheists do the opposite.
0: This is a fair critique. We should all pay attention for situational bias in ourselves and in others that might make us more credulous or more skeptical than we would be otherwise. It's almost as if recommending that someone factor in pragmatic justification in either direction is a hindrance to seeking truth rather than a help.
1: That isn't critical to my argument, however. I'm willing to grant that these are negative costs that need to be subtracted from the great benefit of Christian belief if it's true. Because if Christian belief is true, then you have this infinite gain to be made of eternal life and the love relationship with God that will last forever and that infinite gain simply swamps these finite costs that uh, paulo Gia
0: describes over on my live channel i've done a few videos about how eternal life with god isn't something i would personally choose as long as i can avoid torment but like dr craig this isn't critical to the argument and I can grant torment avoidance as a benefit.
6: With that in mind, wouldn't it be wouldn't the smart thing to do would be to require very high epistemic standards before one decides to dedicate their life to Christ? If you're going to live for Christ, then wouldn't it be wouldn't it be smart to actually meet Jesus in person or even talk to his mother Mary or an angel?
0: I think perhaps this person came from a Catholic tradition or something less evangelical more orthodox than I was. Just was points
6: to the apology it. out because, like you know, he, he figured you out, Kyle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a Catholic, so he got that right. <laughs> Talking to Mary wouldn't really do much for me. But again, this makes sense. He's saying, should we not have a very high epistemic value? Should we not, in the, the words that I prefer to use from Matt Dillahunty and others, should we not apportion our belief to the amount of evidence provided?
8: To yeah. you quotes, Dillahunty is saying proportionally to evidence when that comes from David Hume originally. And- yes,
0: thank you. Good correction. Slipped my mind during the live reaction show. Thus I said, Dillahunty and others, to stall as my memory ultimately failed me in the moment. Thank you. Good correction.
6: I think, apology, might have misunderstood at least that portion of the question. But yeah, I mean, my question basically didn't really boil down to proportion your belief to the evidence, but rather the commitment or the requirements needed for that belief and then you proportion that. To, so like, if you have a belief that requires like a lot, has a lot of demands, then you should increase, like my, my question was like, shouldn't we increase our like bar, so to speak, right? The You know, the evidential bar of Christian theism, right? So if Christian theism requires you to do a, B, and C, and if A, B, and C are hard to do, then shouldn't we raise, you know, that standard of evidence, right? So that was basically what I was trying to ask Craig, right? And I maybe in this part, of, maybe this was the answer to the question that, like, even Paul G didn't really understand, but that was what I was getting at for my question.
0: As Kyle asked the question, he's in the best position to express the original intent of the question. Fair enough. We'll be getting into the weeds of pragmatic versus epistemic justification as we go. So I'll just say here that... In isolation, amount of effort is a poor, pragmatic foundation. Purely on the basis of avoiding commitment, few would endorse exercise programs, or secondary education, or long-term relationships. I am reasonably certain that Kyle ultimately advocates the balance of effort and benefit. As a skeptic, I try, though imperfectly to be sure, to minimize the effect of my preference, or perceived benefit, on any pursuit of truth, or at least, don't lower my standards just to accept what makes me happy. Have little confidence when there's little evidence and save having a lot of confidence when there's a lot of evidence. This makes good sense.
5: My biggest issue is this whole thing is like, how do you measure evidence? Like, how do you know when it's gotten 50% or 60% building on what you said? Like, I, I don't know how to really measure the amount. When people, like in a skeptic, like, Paul here says, like, you need a lot of evidence in proportion to the evidence. I'm always like, well, how do we know when it's enough? Like, this just seems like everyone sets their own subjective standard to determine when there's enough evidence.
0: That's correct. It is a trivial observation to note that what convinces one person may not convince another person.
1: The shifting sands of evidence and argument, which change from person to person, place to place, and generation to generation.
0: If it were universal, we wouldn't need 12 people on a jury. We'd just need one. We'll talk about doxastic voluntarism later on, but I contend that we do not choose what we are convinced of. Each has their own credulity and incredulity threshold. Each has their own life experience and worldview and probable priors that evidence would have to clear to change our mind or be readily accepted to affirm our current position. The subjective nature of epistemic standards for a given proposition is a strange complaint to level at me. At
5: the end of the day, we need to go with the best explanation. That's we could, That's the way we sort of judge this, which is going to be the least ad hoc, the most plausible, that kind of thing. It's really hard to measure people's subjective standard for what they think is enough
0: evidence. But best explanation, least ad hoc, and most plausible are entirely subjective, varying with current worldview, epistemic methodology, and a host of external and personal factors. What's most plausible to me and what's most plausible to Mike don't align at all. These criteria do nothing to make the process more objective. But speaking of entirely arbitrary and subjective...
1: In my systematic philosophical theology, I have a discussion of reformed epistemology in which I take account of this new wrinkle that broadens the conception of evidence beyond what Plantinga meant by evidence. He meant argument and inference. But now, so-called phenomenal conservatives are willing to take the way something seems to you to be evidence. So if it seems to you that there is an external world, um, then that's evidence that there is an external world and you are justified in believing the external world even in the absence of some sort of an argument.
0: What is more arbitrary and subjective than counting how something seems to you as evidence? It seems to me that there is no God. It seems to Bill and Michael that there is a God. In which direction is this possibly evidence? Unless you think Michael would disagree with Dr. Craig on this point.
5: We start with what we intuitively believe, and the skeptic of something, say, like uh, consciousness or free will has to provide evidence that our intuitions are wrong on
0: this. Nope. Michael endorses following your intuition or how things seem to you as a form of evidence. If we can't agree on what counts as evidence, there's no chance for agreement on evidential standards.
7: I know you often mention the witness of the Holy Spirit as a way that one can have direct access to God, but I have done meditative prayer and deep meditation for years upon years, and nothing has come up in terms of God speaking to me directly where I know it wasn't just my own imagination. Many of my fellow Christians have had similar concerns on this also. This is perhaps my biggest struggle, and I cannot seem to get it out of my head as it is causing me to abandon the Christian life because I cannot have high epistemic confidence that Christianity is true, Kyle, in the United States. So great question,
0: Kyle. I love this question. Kyle is in a very similar position to where I was shortly before I left my faith. He's looking for a reason to hold on to Christianity, but he's not finding great reasons like me He is calling out to God, asking God to reveal himself in a very clear, non-ambiguous way. It's great that Kyle is recognizing that a lot of the ways that we think we're feeling affirmations potentially can be attributed to our own internal monologue. So he's looking for a way to rule that out. Kyle and I are on the same page here, but what about Kyle's panel? Doesn't Dillahunty think that even if
6: God were to appear to him, he would think it's a hallucination? Or is that? He said
5: that stuff like
0: that. Yeah, Yeah, similar stuff. stuff. I don't understand how this is a knock on Matt. If you have an experience of God appearing to you, and you don't take at least a few minutes of introspection to evaluate whether it was really God, or whether you might be misattributing some other natural experience as God, then I don't have any respect at all for your critical thinking. That you are mistaken should always be on the table as a candidate explanation. Even if you're a staunch theist, you'd have to agree that throughout history, there are far more false God appearance claims than true ones.
7: Bill, did you notice that Pologgian said that one of the reasons that he abandoned his Christian faith is that he asked God to reveal himself in a clear, non-ambiguous way? And it, it caused me to wonder, well, what are what are his criteria here? What What is clear? What would be clear? What would be non-ambiguous? And I strongly suspect that even if that happened...
1: He, he could say something like, man, did I have the wildest hallucination last
0: night or, or, or something of that sort. If God ever does appear to me, I hope I have the presence of mind to ask God for some kind of externally verifiable information not otherwise available to me, like the proof to a heretofore unsolved math problem, or for God to have my media-isolated ex-pastor, whom I haven't spoke to in a decade, call me up unprompted to say the phrase, Trandoshans hunt Wookiees to honor the scorekeeper. Something like that would help me to rule out hallucination, though other explanations could still be on the table. The fact
1: is that the evidence and arguments for Christianity are certainly sufficient to epistemically justify that belief, even if it doesn't have the sort of uh, epistemic force that an appearance of Jesus would have. Sure,
0: an appearance of Jesus would be better than evidence and arguments, But evidence and arguments are sufficient. But, spoiler warning, Dr. Craig actually thinks...
1: There are good arguments and evidences to epistemically justify Christianity, but
0: I would maintain that they're not necessary. Even though he's open to the evidence. I love this question. Kyle, this question could have been a question that I asked in the months just prior to me leaving Christian faith.
6: Great question. When I asked the question originally, I was sort of like in a panic mode, so to speak. At the time, it wasn't like necessarily doubting the, my Christian beliefs. It was more like, shouldn't we just raise the bar h- higher than where than where it's at now? Basically, if that makes sense,
0: makes sense to me. What does William Lane Craig have to say?
1: When I first heard the message of the gospel as a non-Christian high school student, that my sins could be forgiven by God, that God loved me, He loved Bill Craig, and that I could come to know Him and experience eternal life with God. I thought to myself, uh, and I'm not kidding, I thought, if there is just one chance in a million that this is true, it's worth believing. One in
0: uh, in a million? One in a million. One in a million. That was one in a million. One in a million. Holy cow. All right, so William Lane Craig, master of the Kalam, ontological argument, the man who is almost synonymous with making philosophical arguments for Christianity, when he was in high school, he... Basically, Pascal wagered himself into Christianity.
3: Would you say that, to, to sort of summarize what you were getting at, was you were basically just kind of spelling out Pascal's wager? Would you say that you were just giving a form of it? Yes, this is
1: Pascal's wager. That's right. And I agree with Pascalian wagering. I,
0: I think that he was correct. Excellent. Dr. Craig finally thinks I was correct about something. He thought, hey, if there's a one in a million chance that this sin is true and that Jesus has a way out, I'm all in. One in a million chance. That's what William Lane Craig just said. All you need to follow Christianity. Pascal's wager this thing. Forget the Kalam, forget the ontological. Are you saying you don't think there's a one in a million chance that the Christian God is true? Wow. Obviously,
1: I was not trying to assign numerical values to probabilities. He said the chances were one in a million. I knew it. It's one in a million. Uh, It's a colloquial expression. For example, someone might say, Oh, my girlfriend is one in a million.
6: Okay, your chances are one in a million. So,
0: not literally one in a million, just whatever the absolute smallest unit of a shred of a chance is that you consider remotely reasonable. I'm not sure that helps your case.
9: The threshold value that uh, Christianity has to reach is really low, like one in a million. And what Apologia Seems to do is confuse that with William Lane Craig saying that the probability that Christianity is true is one in a million. A
0: one in a million chance. Not what I said at all. I'm very clear from start to finish that one in a million is Dr. Craig's acceptable threshold, not Dr. Craig's final assessment. And he says that at like at timestamps 4:47. Are you saying you don't think there's a one in a million chance that the Christian God is true? And then 11:48. If there's any shred of proof, if there's a one in a million chance. Be a Christian.
9: Whereas, like, that's not what William Lane Craig's saying. Nor
0: is that what I'm saying. Or said, listen more carefully before you accuse me of misunderstanding, Mr. Squared.
6: So Exactly. That that was yeah. sort of where I think both Paul and, and of course, Derek, mis- for, they misunderstood Craig's response to mm-hmm. the question yeah.
0: at hand. No, we got it. What the Christians responding don't seem to understand is that these skeptical responses are shocked and appalled at the low bar being set. Why should I be impressed at someone telling me they are 99% convinced of something when they openly admit that 0.01% chance is good enough for them? This isn't a commentary on Craig's arguments. It's a commentary on Craig's confidence in his arguments. Dr. Craig is seen by many as someone whose multiple PhDs and vast experience Qualify him as an authoritative proxy. His confidence becomes the basis for assurance for the non philosophical Christian that they are on solid epistemological grounds. It's entirely fair and appropriate for me to ask Christians what weight they should uncritically grant the say so confidence of a man who requires so little. It's not an attack on character, it's not an attack on argument. But it is an attack on blind authority and an appeal for Christians to take on the burden of investigation for themselves rather than rely on this or any man. Unless you want to insist that no Christians do this, when I was a Christian, I did exactly this, take it on authority, because that's what we were taught to do.
3: Because really what he was doing, he was expressing some incredulity about what you said.
0: Yeah. And I
1: think that incredulity is born out of a lack of understanding. Epistemologists distinguish between pragmatic justification and epistemic justification. I
0: mean, I fully understood that you were differentiating between how much evidence you actually have and how much evidence you would need to convince you.
9: The two, like variables that we need to keep track of here. There's the probability that Christianity is true and then the threshold that that has that probability has to meet before you would actually commit to Christianity.
0: Yep got it not confused at all. I'll confess I didn't previously have the labels pragmatic justification and epistemic justification in my toolbox so something positive has come from all this.
3: Philosophy is fun distinctions are fun. Many
1: epistemologists have noted that There are two ways in which a person can be justified in holding a belief. One would be to be epistemically justified. Epistemic justification focuses on providing truth-directed reasons in support of your belief. That is to say, it tries to marshal reasons to show that the belief is true. By contrast, pragmatic justification um, focuses on non Truth directed reasons. You heard him. Non truth directed reasons. Typically, pragmatic justification will be a kind of cost benefit analysis of believing and will play off the costs and benefits to determine whether a person should uh, hold that belief. Sometimes epistemic justification and pragmatic justification can come apart. And pragmatic justification might lead you to raise the standards uh, for believing some proposition to be true, or it might lower the standards for believing some proposition to be true.
0: If you're thinking that Dr. Craig is advocating for the placebo effect of Christianity, that's exactly what he's doing.
1: But suppose you also told that cancer patients who believe that they're going to make it, who believe that they're going to survive, have a better rate of survival than those who do not. And the reason is because this optimistic, upbeat attitude is health conducive. And so if you believe that you're going to make it, you will actually increase your chances of survival. This would be an example of where something might be pragmatically justified for you to believe, uh, even though it wouldn't be epistemically justified. I think that it, um, it is clear that belief in Christianity is pragmatically justified, whatever you might think about its epistemic status.
0: Obviously, I don't think much of its epistemic status, but it is also not clear at all to me that belief in Christianity is pragmatically justified. Dr. Craig's own isolated, privileged experience with Christianity is coloring his advice so much that he has the audacity to say that...
1: And I think this is so key in talking with these atheists about the Christian lifestyle, frankly, suppose that there weren't any negative side effects of of, of great moment uh, connected with this, but that instead the drug gave you a sense of well-being, uh, a deep peace that made your anxiety subside, gave you a sense of confidence, uh, and so forth, so that it actually enhanced and made your life even better, um, even during the time that you're Uh, taking the drug. I think that's a more accurate description of what it's like being a Christian.
0: In fairness, I would have said the same about my own Christian walk. But let's not pretend that's everyone's experience. That it really works for Craig is another reason to be cautious about resting your confidence in Christianity on Craig's personal confidence in Christianity.
1: Now, I think as you can already see from the illustration, we have here a phenomenon that epistemologists refer to as the pragmatic encroachment on the epistemic.
3: Now, one thing to I think that we should note here is that—or pragmatic encroachment, rather—is— very controversial it's it's a controversial view in philosophy but this is a philosophically defensible view that philosophers have defended in the literature and it's it's not as if this is just something that dr craig has has made
0: up is there a one in a million chance it's true it was a million to one shot doc
3: million to one. or is just you know because he he just wishes that it's true and that's that's the reason why he's like his entire apologetic case just completely falls apart
0: his apologetic case rises or falls entirely on his case What we're calling to question is his credulity in personally accepting the case and trying to raise a cautionary flag for anyone who has adopted Craig's confidence as their own. I accepted Christianity largely on the basis of authority of men like Craig, assuming they had rigorous standards, when it turns out, they did not. This is a mistake I hope to help others avoid. Should we not apportion our belief to the amount of evidence provided? have little confidence when there's little evidence, and save having a lot of confidence when there's a lot of evidence. This makes good sense.
1: Okay, here here you see he champions pure epistemic justification, and he, he denies the pragmatic encroachment on the epistemic. He thinks that all you should consider is the epistemic justification
0: for Christian belief. And as I said, Kevin, I'm fine with that. No problem. He's fine with that? No problem? I guess this was all a big misunderstanding after all.
1: I have defended arguments for the existence of God, such as the argument from contingency, the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument from the applicability of mathematics, the fine-tuning argument, the moral argument, and so forth, as well as Christian evidences for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. So I am perfectly fine with making our decision to believe purely on epistemic grounds.
0: But the trouble, Dr. Craig is that you didn't make your decision to believe on epistemic grounds. The fundamental, ground-level
1: way in which I know my faith is true is through this inner, self-authenticating witness of God's Spirit, which assures me that I am a child of God.
0: We will never have a chance to know how compelling you would find all the arguments you list without the bias from your pre-existing assurance you attribute to the Holy Spirit but as long as my decision doesn't factor in your assurance, this is fine.
1: But then the problem is you don't connect with Kyle and his question, because Kyle does believe in the pragmatic encroachment uh, on the epistemic. And I personally believe with with Kyle that that is legitimate, that, it, that that's right. Rather, my disagreement with Kyle is in his cost-benefit analysis. I think Kyle has got it completely wrong in terms of the cost-benefit analysis. The benefit of Christian belief is that if you believe in Christ and it turns out to be true, then you have infinite benefit. You have gained eternal life, a love relationship with God, forever an incommensurable good.
0: I'll still need some convincing that eternal life is a good at all, let alone an incommensurable one. But let's instead substitute mere avoidance of eternal conscious torment, and we can proceed.
1: And at what cost? Well, let's give Kyle the the negative costs of the rigors of living the Christian life and um, uh, eschewing sin and, and so forth. Very good. Though I wanted to say here, parenthetically, Kevin, I don't think the Christian life is like that at all. I think, in my experience, the Christian life is a life that is filled with joy, peace, uh, meaning, uh, love, so that... I don't count these as negatives at all. I I can't think of any better way to live than as a Christian. The blessings of having a clear conscience and of avoiding moral evil and living the ethical
10: life, I think, are just incalculable. From our non-Christian positions, we would say, well, I remember being a Christian, and I remember telling myself that I was having a good time, but actually, in many ways, I wasn't right. And that's obviously how we understand it now. But that opens the door for someone like Craig to say, well, yeah, it's because you just didn't have the kind of you know, self-authenticating experience of the Holy Spirit or the overflowing experience of joy that I have. If you had had that, then you would have stayed a Christian, right? Because you you can't, you know, you can't actually verify these um, subjective personal sort of um, personal assessments of of just how into it you were or whatever. If
1: the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life to transform and change him into a more Christ-like character, then I, I think that person does experience this fundamental a uh, witness of the Holy Spirit and assurance of, of salvation.
10: So, but yeah, that's a lot of uh, that's doing a lot of the work for Craig. And as someone who's been a, a who's been a Christian, when I hear him saying that, I'm like, well, come on, it's not as good as what he's saying. But I mean, then again, maybe it is, right? And maybe that's why I just didn't get it because I didn't get the true um, Holy Spirit experience.
1: But leave that aside. Let's grant Kyle that there are these shortcomings, these costs associated with Christian belief. Again, very good. If you do believe in Christ, and it turns out that Christianity is false, then what have you lost? You you you
0: haven't lost anything in terms of eternity. If Christianity is false, then you've given up 100% of the only life you have in exchange for literally nothing. You can't lose more than everything, and you can't gain less than nothing. If false, this is a terrible wager. There is no way to recover. Because you're
1: just going to be dead. All you've lost is these finite uh, costs of living for
0: Christ. All you've lost is the only life you get.
7: You know, a lot of young apologists that I've seen on Facebook, Bill, are only familiar with a few of your debates and have read some of your articles. I think they expect you to be a little more of an evidentialist than you are. They've only heard you present the evidence like that. And he said stuff like this in the past, so this is nothing new. They haven't seen some of these other aspects philosophically. This is correct. For those paying
0: attention, Dr. Craig has been signaling for decades that feelings are more important than facts in his personal epistemology. Here's what he had to say a decade ago.
1: They need to understand the proper relationship between faith and reason. And my view here is that the way in which I know Christianity is true is first and foremost on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And that this gives me a self-authenticating means of knowing that Christianity is true wholly apart from the evidence. And therefore, if in some historically contingent circumstances the evidence that I have available to me should turn against Christianity, I don't think that that controverts the witness of the Holy Spirit in such a situation.
0: To quote myself wow. If the evidence turns against Christianity, a defeater as it were, Bill doesn't think that controverts the witness of the Holy Spirit. This will be important later.
1: Otherwise, what that means is that our faith is... Dependent upon the shifting sands of evidence and argument, which change from person to person, place to place, and generation to generation. Whereas the Holy Spirit and his testimony gives every generation and every person immediate access to a knowledge of God and the truth of, of Christianity that's independent of the shifting sands of time and place and person and historical contingency.
0: External evidence changes person to person, but personal experience is independent of the person? What world does Bill live in where up is down and black is white? The first current we've already talked about, namely
1: the relationship between pragmatic justification and epistemic justification. The second, quite different current, is this relationship between the witness of the Holy Spirit and evidence and argument in the epistemic justification of Christianity. And we haven't gotten to that yet. I think probably Paul Logie is going to bring that up, and we can address it then, but my point of view is that Christian belief is epistemically justified on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit, even in the absence of argument and evidence for Christianity. I'm
0: definitely going to bring it up. Dr. Craig just doubled down that Christian belief is justified even in the absence of arguments and evidence for Christianity. So my attitude toward this is just the opposite of Kyle's. Far from
1: raising the bar or the epistemic standard that christianity must meet to be believed i i lower it
0: you hear what you just said when you come to christianity you shouldn't be looking to raise the bar the god who invented truth the god who is synonymous with what's real and what's true don't raise your epistemic bar for god to meet you put it on the floor
6: i don't think it should be put up to the ceiling but i also don't think it should
0: be down to the floor uh where craig is
3: setting it on the floor i think that it should be very high it should be very
4: good <laughs> you're borrowing paul's words of the floor <laughs> yeah,
0: well, that's great. <laughs> right. right william like craig just said he literally lowers the bar as low as he can and if that's the bar that his omnipotent omniscient all-powerful god can clear good enough for William Lane Craig. Well,
1: here these two currents that I spoke about begin to get blended together. On the one hand, I've already said I do believe in Pascalian wagering uh, because I, like Kyle, believe in the pragmatic encroachment on the epistemic and that pragmatic concerns can serve to either raise or lower the epistemic bar required for rational belief. But saying that you can do that is in no way inconsistent with the provision of good arguments and evidence for Christianity. I do think that there are good arguments and evidence that epistemically justify Christian belief. I just don't think they're necessary. They are sound, they are available,
0: but they're not necessary for Christian belief to be rational. And they're not what convinced Dr. Craig. So why should any Christian expect that they should convince a skeptic? Maybe these are good arguments, maybe they are not. But Dr. Craig has made it abundantly clear that one in a million chance arguments will be convincing to him on a pragmatic basis. So again, if any part of your confidence in these arguments is the endorsement of the authority of Dr. Craig, you might want to reduce your own confidence.
1: And in the absence of some sort of a defeater of that experience, I'm perfectly rational to believe in the gospel uh, on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit in a properly basic way.
0: We'll come back to defeaters. Think about that the next time he's spouting off the Kalam Cosmic Water Argument to you. This is the man who says he sets the bar for God on the floor, and he's proud of it. <laughs>
5: that was that was that was clearly poisoning the well. Yeah, that was just poisoning the well. Like that's that's literally the fallacy. Like, oh, look look what he says. The next time you hear him present the Kalam, just remember who you're getting. That that's a textbook example of poisoning the well.
0: Yes, well. Every time Dr. Craig has used his podcast to address me, he's done a little well-poisoning himself. The
1: intellectual
0: life of this person was
1: just allowed, well, it was, it was stagnant. It was, he he was, had a
0: brain-dead Christian faith. But to rest on that observation would be the tu quoque fallacy, the you-did-it-too appeal to hypocrisy. Instead, I'm hoping to contrast my actions with the accusation. I've not been committing a William Lane Craig genetic fallacy, where I would potentially be claiming that arguments should be dismissed merely because they come from Dr. Craig, nor is this an ad hominem attack on some irrelevant aspect of his character.
2: Even though ad hominems are actually perfectly fine to do in philosophy, because you can say, hey, look, this is a motivation, it's a red flag, it actually is relevant to the way that he uh, uh, creates his epistemology or how he delves into pragmatics or whatever it might be. I think the one in a million
10: thing is actually just this expression, of I want this to be true so much that I will accept scan. I, I think it's an articulation of motivated reasoning. Basically,
0: I think what's fair for us to say, and this is was the point of making my video, is that not that he thinks that it's one in a million, but we're t- when you're impressed by a William Lane Craig argument and you're wondering why me Paul isn't impressed by it, I think it's fair to say, well, this is a man who it has expressed that it wouldn't take much for him to be a Christian. I'm not psychoanalyzing him. I, I'm just using what he has said was his motivation. I think Those words quite literally say, far
2: from raising the bar or the epistemic standard that Christianity must meet to be believed, I lower it.
0: Like, you know, if he wants to say... (laughs) To the floor. (laughs) So yes, the next time you hear Dr. Craig spoke the Kalam cosmological argument, I want you to think of the radically extreme view of pragmatic justification he's expressed in this answer to Kyle. Not because it makes any argument false not because he secretly gives the argument low credence, but rather that it might make you wary of adopting similar confidence purely on the basis of an authority you perceive to be an unbiased scholar personally swayed by the argument put forth. This clip doesn't undermine William Lane Craig as an expert, but it should perhaps undermine William Lane Craig as a personal authority. And lest anyone wonder if this is a reasonable tact... Dr. Craig does the exact same thing in this very response.
1: So I want to say to our viewers today, uh, especially to those who are not believers, to be very skeptical of these overly easy dismissals that you see on the internet from these popular atheistic bloggers. Uh, Typically, they are skating on the surface and don't understand the deep philosophical questions that are often involved in sorting through these issues and and this i think is one that really illustrates that fact i think that this is a message which is so wonderful so fantastic that if there's any evidence that it's
0: true then it's worth believing in does he hear himself is there any evidence for islam is there any evidence for buddhism Is there any evidence for anything? Well, it's the famous many-gods objection, uh, and that is the most important
1: objection. Different religions can all say the same thing. But there are two responses that the Pascalian can make to that. One is that if these other alternatives have sufficiently low probability, they can be safely ignored. For example, the probability that Odin or... um, Zeus. Did
0: you say Zeus? Yeah, Zeus. Like the Zeus. Zeus Zeus. Uh, I'm not sure if he has a second name.
1: Is really the true God is so negligible that it can be left aside.
0: That's outside my lane. Ocean?
11: This is an interesting take from Craig. There's a book actually that's published by Harvard called A Million and One Gods that discusses this weird dismissal of polytheism in academia and how unfounded it is. And this seems to be just another example of that because Craig's statement seems just completely unsubstantiated. Polytheism has a few advantages with respect to likelihood over monotheism. Polytheism explains the diversity of religious experience. Monotheism has problems with this. Polytheism has greater correlation to the world we experience and more easily addresses things like the problem of evil. Polytheism is able to engage with many of the same arguments that monotheism proposes as arguments for itself, such as the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, while not having these pitfalls that come with the description of the Christian God, such as the coherency of omnipotence or the wild mess that is the Trinity. So, typically the objection that's put forward by Christians against polytheism is that polytheism is made up of so many other religions that conflict with one another, and that's what lowers the likelihood. But this winds up strawmanning polytheism as expressed in history, which typically saw the multiplicity of traditions as a reflection of the reality of polytheism, not something to be seen as in conflict with it. But I guess the real issue with his statement would be that no one who believes in the existence of Zeus or Odin is proposing that they are the one true god. They are proposing multiple gods, as they are deities that come from polytheist traditions. So his statement is false because it's predicated on a gross misconception and is simply malformed. And really, he should know better.
1: Secondly, however, if you can reduce the number of alternatives to a tractable number, like, say, two or three, then you can run Pascal's wager successfully. And so I think for Pascal, he thought that basically the choice was going to be between naturalism and Christianity.
0: Well, we'll get to naturalism momentarily. But even if Christianity is the pragmatic favorite for wagering, a person can't just will themselves to be convinced of something. Am I to fake it till I make it? Won't an omnipotent God see through such a charade? But the way Pascal's wager is this is, no, certainly not fake it."
1: it. It is rather that you weigh the costs and benefits of believing in Christ. And then on that basis, you are justified pragmatically in placing your faith in Christ and believing in him.
0: For pragmatic wish fulfillment reasons, you can lower your standard, but you still need some evidence to clear the bar, no matter how low you put it. You can't simply choose to believe the opposite of your current belief out of thin air.
1: This does assume a kind of doxastic voluntarism that I endorse. I think that it is possible to choose to believe in Christ, to choose to commit your life to him and to receive him. Of course
0: you'd subscribe to doxastic voluntarism.
3: Doxastic voluntarism is the view that beliefs are voluntary, that you can will yourself to believe certain things. Most people, I don't think think that everyone just chooses their beliefs, uh, but they think that at least some of the time we can simply decide what we're going to believe. And, uh, and I, 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 that is not a view I'm sympathetic to. In fact, that's a view that's sort of fallen on hard times um, within the philosophical community. Most philosophers today, I think, would probably subscribe to some version of doxastic involuntarism. They would reject doxastic voluntarism. Right.
0: To be charitable, Perhaps Dr. Craig is not endorsing direct doxastic volunteerism, but rather a form of indirect doxastic volunteerism where you can set yourself up for a belief by immersing yourself in the material, culture, and community of those holding the desired belief, and eventually you'll warm up to it.
10: You know, look, some Christians have, have talked about it. you don't have to accept doxastic voluntarism. You can just kind of like go to church and cultivate these Christian behaviors such that you eventually develop these beliefs over time or something. Um, and so he does actually endorse that view when it's convenient.
0: Some kind of Dances with Wolves epistemology.
6: Ta-tanka. 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 Ta-tanka.
0: Or maybe Avatar epistemology for the youngsters in the audience. They're the same movie.
2: According to this endorsement of doxastic voluntarism, just to put a finer point on it, if I went and lived with flat earthers and studied their sources, I'd one day become a flat
0: earther. William and Craig will be believing in aliens and that Elvis is alive and the Sasquatch and QAnon. Clearly, the Sasquatch detected my
1: presence and returned to destroy any evidence he was here to begin with.
6: Yeah, a Pascal's wager argument is not going to work for, uh, for that. Right. right.
0: Right. Right. I mean, there's no, no utility in believing that Sasquatch exists first. Well, it could be fun to become defensive and argumentative about the potential utility in believing in Sasquatch. Allow me to simply admit that this is a good point, and better examples would have been implausible beliefs with high utility. Perhaps the belief that an unsafe, abandoned property is haunted, keeping you away, or a belief that your neighbors are poisoning Halloween candy, keeping you from eating sugar, or believing in the laws of attraction from the secret, might be inspiring enough to cause you to actually take some action towards your goals. This is essentially listing non-medical placebos. He'll be believing in everything because all he needs is one piece of evidence. And that's good enough for William Linclair. Yeah, this is nothing more than just sarcasm.
2: Is that that new thing called sarcasm? Sarcasm? Is that sarcasm?
1: Yes, it's sarcasm. Don't use sarcasm on me. I'm an old man. I confuse easy. He actually uses sarcasm when he gets into uncomfortable confrontation. Especially when you compare it to the alternatives, like naturalism or atheism.
0: Especially when you compare it to atheism or naturalism? Are you saying that there isn't any evidence for atheism or naturalism? First of all, naturalism is merely just saying that we believe that the natural world we live in is what
1: there is. There are a couple of confusions going on here. First, Pologna doesn't understand what naturalism is. He thinks that naturalism is just a belief that the natural world exists.
0: Whoa, 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 Dr. Craig. That's not what I said. Naturalism is merely just saying that we believe that the natural world we live in is what there is.
1: And of course, that's true because we're in it. But that isn't the distinguishing feature of naturalism. Rather, what the naturalist believes is that there are no supernatural realities.
0: You've expressed naturalism as a negative. I expressed it as the positive. That naturalism is belief that the natural world is all there is. Naturalism is merely just saying that we believe that the natural world we live in is what there is. Meaning that there's nothing beyond it i.e. that there's nothing supernatural.
1: Pologna doesn't understand what naturalism is. I do. You should listen more carefully. Uh, Indeed, most naturalists are physicalists. They don't even believe in the reality of the human soul or or self, Um, and therefore are physical determinists. So uh, he hasn't correctly
0: characterized naturalism. I did. I'm a naturalist and a physical determinist. I've spoken about it many times. Dr. Craig obviously misheard me.
1: Naturalism is a radical worldview that denies that God or um, any sort of uh, transcendent spiritual realities exist. And that requires
0: good epistemic justification, I think. There's evidence for it because we are in the natural world. We don't have to make a single assumption. By Occam's razor, we're making zero assumptions. To assume that naturalism is true.
9: Technically, yeah, that the, the existence of the natural world is evidence for naturalism. I mean, it's te- like very, very weak evidence, but yeah, it is. It's also evidence for, you know, a
5: worldview that, in, like theism, that includes the existence of a natural world.
0: I don't see how that's correct. A natural world may be compatible with theism, but a natural world need not exist in order for a god to exist. The mere existence of the natural doesn't point to a god, nor is it prerequisite for a god. As it is for naturalism.
6: Sorry, he misuses um, Occam's razor here. What matters in simplicity is not going to be the, it's not going to be the, I guess, number of things in the hypothesis, but rather the number of fundamental things in the hypothesis, right? Sorry, Kyle.
0: I didn't say that naturalism had the fewest things. It has the fewest assumptions, which is presumably what you mean by fundamental things. That's unclear. Occam's razor says entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily, that simple theories be favored over complex, and that explanations be sought first in terms of known quantities. Positing something supernatural will always be an extra assumption, an extra entity beyond the natural world, which is agreed to and known.
6: So even if Paul Gia's view is correct in the sense like, okay, like, my worldview is simpler because I only include the natural world. Okay, but that doesn't tell you anything about epistemic theory. probability, right?
0: That's correct. One could theoretically posit ways where a supernatural realm is a better explanation, even if it's not the simplest one. I've yet to see such a demonstration, but it's theoretically possible.
9: In, his, um, in charity to Apology, I think he was saying that the proof of naturalism or the evidence of naturalism is Occam's razor in conjunction with the fact that we, we see the natural world. So Mm -hmm. I think that would be like a mini positive
0: case
8: for naturalism. Thank you. But what about people, but but if you're Craig, wouldn't wouldn't Occam's razor be, if I have an experience, I should accept it? Unless, isn't that also utilizing Occam's razors? Not
0: at all. One need not multiply entities to posit that one has misattributed their experience. People misattribute experiences every minute of every day. No outside factor needed. However... One would need to multiply entities to assume that one is correctly attributing emotions and feelings to something supernatural.
8: So naturalism is actually a pretty rare belief anthropologically. It doesn't mean it's automatically false. But if we're weighing probabilities here in terms of which groups are more likely to be right and have properly functioning senses, I don't really see it working out for the naturalists in that
0: regard. So argumentum ad populum? Argument from popularity? Popular has no bearing on truth. So yeah, I'm not sure about Paul's argument works there. At least my argument is an argument. Your argument is a fallacy. Is he appealing to consequences? He doesn't come around to this. But he's especially when you compare it to atheism or naturalism. So these are philosophies that young high school William Lane Craig didn't like. He didn't like the consequences that he felt atheism led to. So that's why he turned to Christianity. Now, when
1: I compare naturalism to Christianity, I'm obviously... Not comparing their epistemic status, I was comparing the cost-benefit analysis of believing in these. We're talking about pragmatic justification. And here, as I said, the cost-benefit analysis uh, clearly favors Christian belief over atheistic belief. Well,
0: the cost-benefit analysis is going to vary from person to person based on what they value most, isn't it? For me... At some point, what I valued most was the truth and foregoing any pragmatic considerations. Leaving my faith meant losing relationships, losing community, losing business partners and opportunities, and doing great emotional harm to those in this world that I love most. And the only benefit waiting for me on the other side was intellectual honesty. Everything about my life became instantly worse by rejecting Christianity. On the other hand, everything about young Bill Craig's life became instantly better by accepting Christianity. Pragmatically, Craig did better than I did. When it comes to finding truth, however, I'll let you decide whose journey actually counted the cost.
1: On naturalism, you are left with a meaningless, ultimately purposeless, ultimately valueless, finite existence, and and then everything is ended
0: at the grave. It all depends on how you think about the word ultimately, doesn't it? In my view, our existence is most meaningful, most purposeful, and has the most value because it is finite, precious, and the only one we ever get. We assign the highest value to that which is rare. That which is plentiful without end carries less value. Did I use a portion of my very finite existence in conversation about God, seems to be more noble than Dr. Craig, for whom he has infinite minutes to spare.
1: Whereas on Christianity, if Christianity is true, then you have infinite gain.
0: If by gain, you mean infinite torture avoidance.
1: So the comparison here is not epistemically. The comparison is pragmatically in terms of the pragmatic justification of Christianity versus naturalism. I can't think of any pragmatic arguments in favor of naturalism.
0: We know on which side of the unpleasant truth versus comforting lie divide Dr. Craig lands. And I'd say my atheism was actually what led me towards naturalism and and all of the
2: philosophy down that path. So I think that we really are insignificant and that this is the one life that we've got and it's up to us to take care of everybody and to take care of the world, other animals, like do our part, do what we can. And then when you die, you die. Like you're just going back to dust. I don't think I'm special. I don't think I'm even a pawn in this cosmic game at play. And yet Christians think they're quite literally made in the image of God. And they accuse me of narcissism. The the narcissism comment uh, specifically was in reference to Sam Harris saying that, look, Craig's view is the perfection of narcissism. All these children dying of cancer and, you know, all of these horrendous things that are happening around the universe. But God help me help me find my car keys. It's like. It's breathtaking. And Mm -hmm. Craig has espoused those kind of views before and where he appealed so much to his emotional desires, it falls into that category of like, it's all about him. It's all about like him surviving. It's not about serving God. It's all about him surviving and that is narcissistic. Now, when it
1: does come to epistemic justification, well then you need to go to one of those debates when I come to your campus and hear the epistemic justification for the existence of God and the historicity of Jesus, and contrast that with the epistemic justification that the atheist offers for naturalism. And I think when you make that comparison again, uh, a fair-minded observer will say that the case for Christianity is superior.
0: I will leave my comment as brief as Dr. Craig's on the truth value of naturalism, but I consider myself fair-minded and yet find the case for naturalism to be superior. And if you believe me, I had strong pragmatic justification to reject naturalism and yet couldn't on epistemological grounds. I wonder if Dr. Craig is factoring in his favorable pragmatic bar on the floor justification in his assessment of who is fair-minded and who is not. I think we need to all save this clip every time William Lane Craig comes out in a debate from now on. This is the best clip ever.
5: Uh, so every time not Craig comes out to debate, we got a to poison the well immediately.
0: Right, exactly. That's fair. It's a point to bring up only in cases like a minute ago, when Dr. Craig attempts to categorize only those who agree with him as fair-minded, where his own personal epistemology is made a factor in the debate. So the whole, like, Craig didn't like the consequences thing, like, I I don't really understand how he can use that as a psychological point, because we could, if that actually had any merit to it, then we could say the same exact thing about the atheist and say, well, the atheist doesn't want to be a Christian. But I did want to be a Christian desperately because they don't want to be held morally responsible toward the god or they just want to sin or something like if you think sin is a thing christianity is the best way to get away with it without eternal consequence we could say the same thing so i don't really see what this adds to the conversation i think if a non-christian came out and openly admitted that they lower their epistemological bar specifically for the pragmatic benefit of enjoying a sinful lifestyle, and if that same atheist is presenting themselves as an unbiased expert to be trusted on authority, then it would be very relevant for the conversation. If Kyle really knows what it's like to experience the
1: love of God and to have this hope in eternal life and forgiveness of sins, then... It it seems to me that he will um, gravitate toward that alternative.
0: It will- so if Kyle has the good feelings that come from Christianity, a sense of hope, which of course you can generate internally, a sense of love, which again, of course you can generate internally, then you just hold on to that.
1: Now here Paul is addressing that issue of the proper basicality of Christian belief. And the argument here is that the Christian's experience of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit grounds his properly basic belief in Christ and in God. And in the absence of a defeater of that, he's perfectly rational to go on believing in that, just as you are rational to believe in the reality of the past or the reality of the external world.
0: William L. Craig has no outsider test of faith going here at all, because burning of the bosom with the Mormons, for example, like they have all the good feelings. And that's supposed to be good enough evidence that it's true? Come on. Now, what about
1: the Mormon who claims to have a burning in the bosom or someone else who has a a non-Christian experience? I think that there are good defeaters for those that suggest that those experiences are not veridical. But I do not know of any such defeaters for the veridicality of the Christian experience. And so in the absence of those defeaters, I am perfectly rational, to believe in the truth of the gospel um, in a properly basic way.
0: Now I'm on record here and elsewhere saying that I'm right until proven wrong is a terrible way to evaluate truth claims. It is the person making the positive claim that carries the burden of proof. As David Hume said, we apportion belief to the evidence provided. But let's for a minute entertain Dr. Craig's logic here and posit, for the sake of argument the existence of defeaters to Christianity. What would Dr. Craig say to that?
1: If you're to be rational in maintaining your position, the person who offered the argument when confronted with these defeaters needs to offer a defeater of the defeaters. You need to give an answer to the defeater. Now, what Alvin Plannigan points out is that there could be such a thing as an intrinsic defeater-defeater. That is to say, it could be a belief that is so powerfully warranted for us that it just intrinsically defeats the alleged defeaters that are brought against us. And the claim is, couldn't the witness of the Holy Spirit, who warrants to us certain Christian beliefs, couldn't that warrant be so powerful that it intrinsically defeats the objections brought against it? For example, imagine a young person being raised in the old Soviet Union who's in a class being indoctrinated by a Marxist professor, and this is a young Christian, and he doesn't know how to rebut the arguments for atheism that the professor is bringing, but nevertheless the warrant that the Holy Spirit gives to him of the truth of his Christian faith is so powerful that it simply overcomes those defeaters, Uh, and therefore he is rational to continue to hold his Christian belief even in the absence of a defeater of those alleged defeaters. And I do think, in fact, that the witness of the Holy Spirit can, in various circumstances, be so powerful as to be such an intrinsic defeater of defeaters.
0: So Dr. Craig says...
1: And so in the absence of some defeater of that, I think you are epistemically justified uh, in believing in Christ, even if you don't have arguments and evidence in support of it.
0: But if anyone actually presents a defeater, that doesn't matter because... The witness of the Holy Spirit can in various circumstances,
1: be so powerful as to be such an intrinsic defeater of defeaters.
0: That is to say, Dr. Craig's feelings-based faith requires no evidence, and at the same time is impervious to any and all evidence against it.
1: You see how clever this part is, how it doesn't require a shred of proof? Most paranoid delusions are
0: intricate, but this is brilliant. Do you see how this epistemology can justify literally any belief whatsoever? Dr. Craig is playing Uno with a deck of nothing but reverse cards.
1: People often talk about this as the assurance of salvation, and I think that is the privilege of every born-again Christian. Um, so I, I hope that Kyle is more than just a nominal
0: Christian. No true Scotsman, this thing.
9: There are nominal Christians out there. Just, just right,
0: so yeah, yeah. yeah. Just,
2: there, there, the no true
0: Scotsman fallacy only applies to, like, when you're trying to put criteria on something that the criteria aren't, like, necessarily a part of being. Oh, gentlemen, I didn't realize that thousands of denominations of Christianity have come up with a clear definition of the universal criteria for calling oneself a Christian. Where might I find that? We have Nicene Creed's. Oh, so Bill's gatekeeping criteria that I called him out for was having an assurance of salvation in order to be a non-nominal Christian. Nicene Creed, show me assurance of salvation. Oh... Seems like maybe Dr. Craig was no true Scotsmaning after all. It's not really, it doesn't really make sense to just say no true Scotsman to any single time we say something. Hey, my only criteria for calling someone a Christian is that they self-identify as a Christian. Until the Christians agree on something else, from where I sit, all the rest of it is fallacious gatekeeping.
1: And that he's really come to experience the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and that he's indwelt. If that relates to... My genuine pastoral concern for Kyle.
0: And what was question asker Kyle's evaluation of Dr. Craig's answer? I didn't agree with his response,
6: of course, but we'll get into that. Like, it's just not a very good response. Um, There's a lot of epistemological issues, um, a lot of epistemological problems with with that sort of taking that sort of approach. So even if I didn't agree with Craig's response, I think the fact that he said, oh, well, it only needs to be one in a million. I mean, that seems really low. Like, that just seems ridiculously low even if I didn't think it was a great response. I guess in terms of like just lowering the bar to like one in a million, just that was just really embarrassing in my opinion.
0: Ouch, Kyle didn't agree. It wasn't a great response. It was just really embarrassing. And did Kyle share this feedback with Dr. Craig himself?
3: So Kyle, the original guy who posed the question, he's actually here. His YouTube oh, channel I is called it. Christian. His name is Christian Idealism. He's a, he's a Christian YouTuber. And uh, he oh. says, thanks for answering my question, Dr. Craig. Kyle paid
0: money just to say thanks for an embarrassing, not great response, not offer constructive criticism.
1: Is, is it possible for me to ask Kyle a question or is he sort of offline?
3: Uh, no, ask him a question. And if I can find okay. it in the live chat, then I'll, I I'll have his uh, put it. response. I don't know whether
1: my answer was of any help to you. One of the things that I feel badly about, sincerely, is these atheist bloggers have in a sense said that I'm lousy at pastoral counseling, uh, that the advice that I gave to you was unhelpful to a doubting Christian, that it was destructive, that, that, that basically said, I'm a really bad personal counselor. And so I would like to know and I'm taking a risk here, I would like to know how Kyle feels about the advice I gave him as opposed to the advice that these bloggers are giving him.
0: Okay, here's Kyle's chance to come clean. So Kyle has responded in the live chat. I found his
3: comment. He says, okay. tell Dr. Craig that I have appreciated the pastoral advice. I understand the need for a relationship with God and to not be a nominal Christian.
1: Okay, thank you, Kyle. That was courageous of you to respond in that way. I- courageous of him to respond
0: that way? That wasn't courageous. He chickened out of his chance to provide honest feedback to his hero. I appreciate it so much. Uh, my my heart
1: is with you, Kyle, and um, I I want so to to be a help to you in your walk with God.
4: I was
0: not happy.
4: I mean, me and Paul literally talked to Kyle yesterday. Mm-hmm. So like we get to talk with Kyle, and Kyle did not agree with a lot of the way that Craig... His response was we didn't say that in the chat. Uh, when, yeah, when about chat. that
0: first. <laughs>
4: and as if Carl's just Whoa. gonna turn
10: around and go, Yeah, it was terrible.
4: <laughs> what, well, what can he say? Yeah. I think this was a polite response to him. He's trying to like, I'm gonna give you like only the positive responses that I you know, I'm not gonna tell you like, I think he really like butchered that one, Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig. Um, you know, like I, I don't think he was gonna say that. There's kind of an authority. He is an authority figure, and so like there's a sense of authority here, especially when he's like a father in the faith kind of figure
0: to Christians. You know what I mean? Kyle heard us talking and clarified.
10: I was just going to say Kyle left that comment and said, "Guys, my response to Craig was me being nice. I wasn't going to give him an active response in the live chat." And it's like, but that's sort of the point, right? Isn't it? Because that's the opportunity. If Craig's got a false belief, that's the opportunity. To, but, but this is what I mean about the performative element of the apologetics, yeah. right? Because he he's saying, look, I'm really putting myself out there, but he actually isn't because there's no chance that you're going to give him a negative response in that context. And it makes it, the performance makes it look like it's honest, truth seeking, but it isn't because um, you're too afraid to tell the truth in that context, right? Or yeah. you
4: respect, you could call it afraid in another polite way of yeah, saying it's it, like, you respect him so much, you're not trying to offend or
10: whatever. And I get it. Yeah, but everyone is, even Cameron, the host, right? Everyone's too scared, Dr. Craig, like everyone's too scared to tell the guy the truth. He's surrounded himself by like, yes, man. a there's a... A kind of epistemic bubble created where no one can actually ask the difficult questions. because mm. And filled with the
1: Holy Spirit. Um, because I think then that, that removes the, the huge epistemic uh, bar that he thinks you need to get over in order to become
0: a Christian. Why would the God who created the universe not be able to clear a high epistemic bar? Why do you need to set the epistemic bar on the floor in order for the Christian God to clear it? Do you hear yourself? That was the end. All right. What do you think? Is this a clip that every YouTube apologist needs to start using? Can you believe that Dr. Craig said this, or am I missing the point? Maybe I've missed the point. Maybe there's a nuance here that I don't understand.
9: At the end, apology asks, like, is there some nuance that I'm missing? And like, I think there is, and you see
0: it throughout the video. What you're seeing here is a distillation of a dozen or more hours of footage critiquing my critique and the issues surrounding Kyle's question. I trust I've covered everything. But if not, let me know in the comments. But holy cow, I just heard William Lane Craig say, don't have a high epistemic bar for Christianity. If there's any shred of proof, if there's a one in a million chance, be a Christian. Because I think that your one and only life is well spent, dedicated to this proposition that has a one in a million chance. Did I hear it wrong? Or did I hear that right? Let me know in the comments
8: where the bar is placed. Oh, sorry. That was sorry. Paul's reaction to being corrected. <laughs> I, I think that the whole point of, of this is that I think it's, I uh, think correct, so I know you know Swinburne better, but Swinburne talked about the joy of seeking. And I think the idea that, you know, we all have these channels and we're doing this right now, we're talking about theology and apologetics because there is stuff to discuss and debate. If God was as obvious as the existence of trees or something, I think we would go about our lives and be indifferent towards it. But I think the idea that we have to work and we have to study and we have to learn not only builds up our own self-discipline, but makes us more engaged and more interested mm-hmm. to learn more about God. If God has told us everything up front, I think we'd become really bored with it. So I, I'm excited that we have to yeah. discuss these and disagree on things. I think that just makes it more worthwhile.
0: Wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me that the reason God won't reveal himself in a way that would meet a high epistemic bar, the reason why I will face eternal conscious torment and miss out on the joys of an eternal life is so that the five of you won't get bored, apologia, and billions throughout history will go to hell. But the Christian YouTubers were modestly more engaged in apologetics. Glory be! They're saying if here on Earth, God's existence was plain to everyone, we would become indifferent in our few short years here. But Dr. Craig just spent this whole video trying to tempt everyone with literally forever where God's existence is plain to everyone. And that's supposed to be a prize that never gets old? Something doesn't add up here, boys. You know, when it comes to divine hiddenness, like, divine hiddenness seems to assume that, like, everyone has, like,
6: God needs to meet, like, everybody's subjective um,
0: standard of evidence. I can't help but use my subjective standard of evidence. I have no other option, just as Kyle has no other option but to use his standard. If God isn't willing to meet my standard then I'm condemned to hell for something outside of my control. The good news is all God would have to do is meet the standard of the most skeptical person and the rest of the population would be covered automatically. According to the Bible, he did this for the Israelites. So no problem, right? If we're going to do that, then we're basically, we're in charge
6: of like saying, oh, well, I won't worship God or I won't do this for God unless he reaches the this, this standard, right? I
0: can't worship God or do anything for God until I believe he exists. God belief is a prerequisite. If God convinces me that he exists, then and only then can I make an informed decision about worship. In that
6: sort of way, if you're gonna if you're gonna treat it like that, then it seems like you're above God in, in this sort of epistemic sense.
0: I'm not putting myself above God because I don't think God exists. There's nothing at all I can do about becoming convinced or not convinced. If God wanted it otherwise, he could have designed it otherwise.
7: Bill, it's difficult to know how to wrap this up because as, you, as you've as you said, there are a lot of cross currents. There sure
0: were a lot of cross currents, rabbit trails, and loose ends. So hopefully we've dealt with them all.
3: So first of all, you're awesome. Like you, you just watched a really, really long
0: video just now. And since you made it this long, perhaps you'd consider subscribing to the channel and supporting the mission of PolyGia by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar per video. This is what I do for a living now, so your support is greatly appreciated. Tap on the playlist on screen now for my other interactions with Dr. William Lane Craig, and I will see you over there. Until next time, later.